You are listening to Bitcoin, Blockchain and the Technologies of Our Future with Naomi Brockwell. Glenn, it's such an honor to chat with you. You're a huge inspiration for me. The risks that you take as a journalist are inspiring. I would just love you to dive into this idea of the fourth estate and the importance of the media and journalists such as yourself in just you know, upholding integrity, speaking truth to power, something that you've done your entire career. Sure. You know, I think that in some ways, uh, if if we feel like we've discovered some important truth, like had an epiphany about politics or the world, if we go back and start looking backwards in history, we realize that actually we're just rediscovering things that typically have been discovered almost every generation because they're the byproduct of, of human nature. For me, the radicalizing event for sure in my lifetime was the change in the climate that took place after the attacks of September 11th. I lived and and worked in in Manhattan at the time I was in Manhattan on that day. And, you know, like most people was somewhat traumatized by those events. It was an enormous deal that two passenger jets were flown into, you know, two of the most iconic towers in the world and they collapsed within you know, two hours onto 3,000 people and another flew into the Pentagon. Obviously, an event that traumatizing is going to change the climate and change the framework, and it and it did. And I think that people in that moment, and I include myself, and if you look at polls, it's almost everybody, were kind of willing to give some trust and faith into institutions, including the government media institutions, which previously they might have been unwilling to to provide. And within a very short period of time, that trust proved to be misplaced when the government and the corporate media united, regardless of motives, to disseminate a series of falsehoods that led to the invasion of Iraq. And very shortly thereafter, people realized that what they were encouraged to be convinced of in order to support this war ended up being false. And that obviously led to a lot of questions about how is it that you know, not right-wing media, but the most prestigious media, the New York Times, the Atlantic, the New Yorker, NBC News, played such an important and central role in disseminating these incredibly consequential, weighty, but destructive falsehoods. And then that was shortly when I began, right after that, when I began writing about politics based on the idea that the media had obviously failed in its core effort, which is to be an adversarial check against government. And even parts of the media were acknowledging that, saying we got too close to the government. We became too trusting of it. We didn't do our job to be skeptical of it. But I think that despite paying lip service to that lesson, they didn't actually take steps to separate themselves from those centers of power over which they were supposed to be exercising watchdog scrutiny, but instead were serving as uh, kind of spokespeople for. And we've seen over the years them getting closer and closer. And certainly in the Trump years, as I said earlier, it brought all these institutions closer together than ever. But one of the things that I think that we're now seeing 
as kind of a backlash against that. I mean, if you look at polls, it's undoubtedly the case that trust and faith in media corporations is at an all-time low. Almost nobody trusts that what they're saying is true. Nobody believes they're reliable any longer. And that is in turn creating a space for a new media ecosystem, one that's independent, one that doesn't rely on these large corporations. And increasingly what you're seeing is the audiences for these large media corporations disappearing and migrating to spaces that have become basically defined by their independence from those orthodoxies. And that to me is the fulfillment of that original promise of the internet I talked about earlier. And it's one of the reasons I'm so devoted to that migration to those platforms that are there to serve as kind of an oasis of free inquiry and free thought. Um, but also because I think that it is vital that we have a check against not just the centers of power, but also these media corporations, which in their own way have become their own center of power as well. Absolutely. So I, just another quick question that I want to dive into that migration because I think it's super interesting. Uh, when you were first publishing all the Snowden revelations, you talked extensively in your book about the rigmarole, all the hoops you had to jump through. You know, you, the, the idea that, and I don't think a lot of people realize this, the media is expected to run all of these reports that may be critical of the government past the government in advance and get permission from them in order to post said criticisms of the government. And I, I was shocked when I learned about that from your book. I did not realize how incestuous this relationship had really become. And I worked in corporate media. I understand that you need to have access and you need to, in order to keep access, you basically write about, you know, and, and uh, make films about whatever the, the White House sends you on a silver platter as news of that day, right? Um, but this was a whole nother level. So I just wanted to just get your take on all of that and how we can possibly expect to have a free press if the press is expected expected to send everything to the White House first to get permission before publishing. You know, one of the uh, really remarkable and unusual components of the Snowden story was obviously it was the most important national security leak of that year. And I think you could argue of the of, of this generation. And in the past, when there was a big national security leak, there were basically only two places that you would go to if you were in the government and had that. One is the New York Times. The other is the Washington Post. That's where Daniel Ellsberg, for example, took the Pentagon Papers. It's where most of the leaks, the big leaks of, of the war on terror were taken. And, you know, Edward Snowden chose to avoid that framework. He came to me, someone who at the time was a columnist, but only for about 10 months at The Guardian, and it always kind of had one foot at least very much on the outside and just like maybe a few toes within establishment media. And the other was Laura Poitras, who had never worked in any major media outlets, who was a, a documentarian uh, whose Oscar-winning film in 2005 or Oscar-nominated film in 2005 about the Iraq war got her placed on a watch list, a government watch list. And he has talked about the reason why he came to us. It was because... When I first started writing about politics in 2005, the big scandal that I immediately focused on that actually began to build my audience was the New York Times had revealed in December of 2005 that shortly after 9-11, 
the Bush administration had ordered the NSA to begin spying not on foreign nationals, but on American citizens without the warrants required by American law. They had concocted this theory that the president had the power to ignore congressional law in the name of national security. And it was a huge story. The, the New York Times published it in December 2005. It won a Pulitzer. And it's what I began my career by writing about almost every day, the significance of that story. As it turned out, the New York Times had learned about this program, not in December of 2005 when they published it, but almost 16 months earlier, in the middle of 2004. And when they learned about the existence of this program, instead of doing their job as journalists and going and reporting on it, they instead went to the Bush White House, the top editors of, of the New York Times, and said, we've learned about this program. And George Bush said, if you publish anything about this, you will have the blood on your hands from the terrorist attacks that you will enable. And the New York Times decided to conceal the existence of this domestic spying program, this illegal domestic spying program, even though in six months there was about to be an election, a presidential election, allowed George Bush to stand for re-election without having the American people learn about what the New York Times had known, which is that there was this illegal domestic spying program in place. And the only reason why they even ended up ever publishing it in December of 2005 was because the lead reporter, Jim Risen, had gotten so frustrated and angry knowing that he had this huge story that he told the Times he was going to write a book and publish it there. And the Times was worried that they were going to get scooped by their own reporter. And they finally let him, because they had no other choice, publish it in December of 2005. And the lesson Snowden took from that, and I wrote about it a lot at the time as well, was that even despite this kind of mea culpa that the New York Times and other media outlets did, oh, we weren't sufficiently critical of what we were hearing from the government about Iraq, they still had this interlocking relationship. And what Snowden was most worried about was that he would unravel his life. He would you know, risk going to prison for decades to turn over this vast archive of secret documents to the New York Times or Washington Post they would maybe publish one or two documents, okay. win Pulitzers and all the other awards, but get convinced by the U.S. government to hide most of it. And when we got this archive and, you know, I was at The Guardian, that's what the U.S. government very much tried to do, to bully us, to coerce us, to pressure us into concealing essentially all of it. And when I refused, they were shocked because that's not how mm -hmm. things worked. And I think that the creation of an alternative way of doing journalism, it's why I left The Guardian to create The Intercept. It's why now I am devoting myself to the development of independent journalism, separate from these big corporations that are wedded in so many ways to the government, to the Pentagon, to the security state, is precisely in recognition of the fact that obviously you can't have a fourth estate if they're actually in bed with the first, second, and third estate, right? They're the mistress of the first, second, and third estate and not the fourth estate. And you need that free press to check those institutions.
Absolutely. So let's dive into this migration that's happening. You just alluded to it yourself. You're now devoted to Substack. It's a fantastic publication. I love how independent it is because I know that when I'm reading it, I'm reading Glenn Greenwald and I'm not reading something that has been, you know, tempered or has been, you know, dulled down and censored in any way. And that's just so wonderful to get back to those roots of writers being able to connect directly with their audiences. The only hesitation I have about migration to a lot of the popular platforms out there is that we're relying on the goodwill of those CEOs and those central agencies to say, okay, we promise not to censor you. We're actually one of the good ones. I mean, Google started out that way too. Their tagline mm. was, don't be evil. YouTube was, you know, the, the idea was it's you on in your grandmother's basement uh, and with a camera computer doing whatever, you know, and you could connect with an audience. And then they became completely co-opted as well. Now they push all the corporate media narrative. Um, so the only real path, as far as I can see it, is decentralizing the internet, decentralizing these social media platforms. And that seems to be the current wave, the trajectory of the internet. We're moving into Web 3.0. We figured out we now have blockchain technology that allows us to decentralize trust. I personally am on like at least 12 different platforms, like things like Library or the front end is called Odyssey, where it's literally based on blockchain technology. That data is on the chain. So the central company who created the front end, they can't censor you. They can't take that data down. It's a new wave of being able to reach people without being controlled. So mm-hmm. I just wanted to get your thoughts on this. Is this a world that you're diving into? I know that currently you're, you're on Substack, um, but do you have plans to explore some of these censorship resistant platforms where it's built into the technology. Yeah, for sure. You know, I think the history there is really interesting and has been a little bit forgotten, which is if you, and you said this yourself, and I agree completely, when Google and Facebook and Twitter were first created, the founders of those companies did not intend to be the referees of our political discourse. They weren't looking to censor or define the outer boundaries of permissible speech. Quite the contrary, both for ideological reasons, which is Silicon Valley was kind of dominated by that libertarian mentality that the internet should be free, but also for business self-interested reasons. Why would you create a platform and then start looking for ways to kick people off, right? You'd want as many people as possible to participate, they really didn't want to engage in this role. The reason Facebook and YouTube and and Google and Twitter started censoring is because this obligation was foisted upon them by largely by large media corporations. You know, the New York Times, NBC News, CNN started essentially turning their megaphone onto these executives and saying, you, Facebook, are allowing people to question the decrees of the CDC and Anthony Fauci and the World Health Organization, or you, Twitter, are allowing people to express right-wing views. And therefore, if something happens, like huge numbers of people don't want to take a vaccine or people engage in a violent riot at the Capitol, the blood is on your hands. It's because you're being reckless and irresponsible in your refusal to remove harmful content from the internet. And the combination of that harm to their business from that theme emerging, combined with the fact that, you know, even if you're a billionaire, 
you still live in society and care about what society thinks about you. Maybe unless you're Elon Musk, who seems not to, but by and large, you know, most people care, no matter how rich they are, that they not be viewed as evil people. That pressure is very potent. And it was combined with the Democratic Party once they got control of both houses of Congress and the White House, explicitly telling these companies, if you don't start removing more and more of what we consider hate speech and disinformation, you're going to suffer legal and regulatory reprisals. And these companies kind of got coerced into it. I don't mean to idealize them or exonerate them of blame. I'm just saying that I believe that the forces came first from the outside. And ironically, it's now coming from within their own workforce, too. That tends to be this millennial generation that that doesn't believe in free speech. So they're getting this pressure from both external and internal sources. I, When I started to think about how I wanted to go do journalism and where I wanted to go do journalism. Once I got censored at my own media outlet, the one that I had created to give you a sign of how repressive things have become. (laughs) I felt like blockchain and crypto wasn't quite, weren't quite at the point where it would enable me to reach a mass audience where I was ready to master and understand and promote what that technology was. And so what I looked for was kind of a bridge between traditional, increasingly repressive media and the kind of utopian promise of blockchain that I do think is arriving quickly, but not quite yet here. And that transition for me became companies that were created specifically with the intention to avoid big tech repression And again, whether because the founders really believe that free speech is virtuous and worth protecting, which I believe is true of the founders of Substack. I'm now at Rumble. I believe they were were a video platform, a competitor to YouTube. I believe they think that too. I just joined uh, Colin, which is a podcast platform founded by David Sachs, one of the early founders of PayPal. I believe all of them are genuinely committed to it both as an ideology, but also as a business uh, model. Because if they start censoring, essentially, why would you use a platform that is doing the same things as Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter? You would just go use Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter. So for the moment, I trust that they are committed to that. The problem becomes the technological attack. Parler, you know, it's so ironic when I used to object to the censorship of Facebook and Google, what I would hear, ironically, from like people on the liberal left, suddenly sounding like hardcore free market, you know, Keynesians, like a free market economist, they would say, well, look, Facebook and Google are private businesses. They can do whatever you want. If you don't like what they're doing, go create your own Facebook and Google. You know, and the idea was, well, actually, they're monopolies. By definition, you can't compete with them. But the people who created parlor heard that challenge okay well if you don't like facebook and google and how much they're censoring go create your own social media company parlor did that and exactly at the moment that they became the most downloaded app the most popular app in the united states more popular than instagram tiktok youtube twitter the rest a combination of apple and Google united to remove Parler from their stores so that you could no longer download it 
or get updates to it. And then Amazon removed them from web services and basically destroyed Parler overnight. So that was a case where the executives and founders were devoted genuinely to preserving a free speech framework, but they kind of got destroyed by the technological attack. And so the question is, even if you are Substack, Rumble, Colin, or whoever, with a genuine commitment to avoid censoring and capitulating to these social pressures, how do you avoid this Mm -hmm. centralized dependence that you have on these technologies? A lot of them are thinking very hard about how to create alternatives, but I think you're absolutely right that ultimately the only real solution out of this is to stop using platforms and start using protocols. Mm -hmm. You know, like, as you said, things like Ghost and Odyssey and places like that, there is no CEO that you can sufficiently pressure into the platforming somebody. It just technologically can't be done because of how decentralized blockchain is. So I agree with you that that ultimately is where we're going to have to go. Just I'm not quite sure it's pervasive and user-friendly enough yet to be... A, a form of mass media. We are actually out of time uh, for this segment. Glenn, just been wonderful chatting with you. And I'm a Bitcoin, staring, I'm staring the status quo.